Did you know that the average human spends 92,000 hours at work during their lifetime? That's more than we spend eating, cleaning, driving, watching TV, or even surfing the internet. In fact, work is what we do most. It comes second only to sleeping. Welcome to 92,000 Hours, the podcast that believes in the integration of life and work. I'm your host, Annalisa Holcomb. Before we begin, I wanted to tell you a quick story about why this podcast is so personal to me. I began practicing law at age 26 and learned many valuable lessons, including that I was deeply unhappy at work. Although I was on a path that looked like traditional success, I realized that I needed to quit my job in order to align myself with my passion and purpose. Now I am dedicated to making sure all of our 92,000 hours at work are spent well instead of simply spent. How do we construct a working world that values and accommodates our humanity? How do we construct a life that is not separate from, but fueled by, the purpose we find in our work? In this podcast, we will explore those questions and more. In each episode, I will speak to someone that demonstrates meaning, passion, and purpose in their work. Join me in discovering what happens when we bring our whole selves to our work, schools, and communities. This week, I am joined by Anne-Marie Vivienne. Anne-Marie is a writer, poet, and friend. She uses ordinary rituals to create a life of wonder, purpose, and possibility, and helps others do the same in their own rhythms. Her writing delves into the healing qualities of wisdom, resonance, beauty, and living a life in flow with the seasons. She is the founder and creator of Wisdom Anthologies, where she documents the culture of elder women, and is the co-host of the Iona podcast with Allie Kessler, as they explore feminine systems, ancient, modern, and conceptual. And today, we're talking about wisdom. We're going to start up with our standard main question that everybody is required to answer to be on the 92,000 hours podcast, which, you know, which is the, it starts with, uh, the removing things from your life. So like really getting down to the essence of who you are. So you can't count work or sports or volunteerism or, uh, religious activity or research um, take all those things away that are things that you do and tell me about who you are as a person. What are you most proud of about yourself? Who are you that like, you know, what makes you really proud of yourself as a human? Um, I think for me, um, I'm a good friend and a good listener. I love listening to people. And I think that's feeds into all those other things you mentioned, job, spirituality, um, all those things. But I think at my core, I am a friend and I'm really proud of that and a loyal friend and a, a friend who gives unconditional love. So I'm proud of that. That's awesome. Tell me about like, just as a, to dig in a little bit more, what does, what, what's an example of how that has looked like for you? Like mm. when you are actively being a good friend or a good listener, what does that look like? Mm. So, yeah, I think 
it's it's not just a one moment thing where I'm going to sit down and listen to you right now because you're crying or because, you know, your life just blew up. But it's I'm curious about, you know, the way I put it is I'm curious about learning people's songs. Um, and that takes a lifetime for anyone to discover their own song. And so, you know, um, for instance, you know, a couple of my close girlfriends, you know, they're they're the creative types. And I think you know, they, we all end up being a little bit more introverted. And I think in some ways it's a little bit of a protection because we know we're meander, meanderers as creatives. And a lot of people want you to just fit in a box because it's easier for them to navigate you. And mm -hmm. I feel like with, you know, with my friends and watching them, you know, we've tried to start projects a couple of times and then they get distracted and want to do something else. And I think, you know, I could get mad and offended and say, well, we were going to do this and what happened? And, you know, like you said you were going to do this and you didn't. And it's just listening to them and, and to their hearts and them just finding their rhythm. And I love listening to their rhythms and, and seeing and being surprised by them. I think being a listener means you're willing to be surprised because often I think we think we know what people are going to do or what they're going to say. And so when they don't do it, we're offended for some reason, like, oh my God, you didn't do what you normally would have done, or you didn't show up in the way you normally show up. But it's like, oh, that's interesting. You, you did a variation on me, you know? And if you think of a song, you know, like there's these kind of refrains or the chorus that comes again and again. But the interesting part is when they, tweak it a little bit you know and all of a sudden you're like oh that's new but I think for me being a friend and being a listener means learning someone's song and giving them a whole lifetime to do that and finding those people you do resonate with because I do think you know I've discovered there's people I just don't resonate with and I think to be a friend in that instance is to just let it go oh, I love that I've never heard anybody talk about listening as like as lyrical like that. That's really pretty. I love it. <laughs> One of the things I really want to talk to you about today was your passion project, the wisdom anthologies that you do. Can you talk a little bit about what that even is? Yeah. So it's definitely on hold with COVID. Um, yeah. But so what wisdom anthologies um, was, and I think when COVID is over, it will be something new. I don't know what yet, but the essence of what it is, is um, I love sitting with elder women. And I feel like in our culture, we've really lost touch with our elders. And I really do think um, because of that, we've lost a lot of wisdom and we've, we've lost this kind of oral tradition and we've lost, um, yeah, we've lost a lot with it. So wisdom anthologies, and we'll get more into it. I will try not to go on and on but is me just, I've traveled the world looking for women who are willing to let me listen to them actually. And it's, it's really interesting that there's so many women who don't want to be listened to. They're so used to not being listened to that being listened to is actually such a vulnerable place to be. And I think for so long now, for generations, I feel like we've slowly been ignoring our elders that they, 
they get to this place of, you know, where they could be considered elders and they don't know who they are and they can't, they still can't trust themselves and they don't want to tell their stories and they don't think they've learned anything. And, um, and then you find the gold, the gold, golden ones who are just like, they own it. And they're like, yes, I have lived a life and I have a perspective and I have something to say. And so I just feel honored that they will let me listen and I learned a lot from them. And so I document them, I photograph them, I do some audio recordings. Um, and hopefully one day I'll be able to compile it into a book and someday documentaries. So, so cool. Yeah. <laughs> you called it wisdom. So I'm interested, and I want to focus on that language for a good piece of this because I'm interested in what does, like, what does that word mean to you? Yeah. So I'm going to just like throw out a few characteristics and we can dive yeah. down whatever hole we want to dive down. But ultimately for me, wisdom, I, I think a lot about not to dichotomize things, but I, you know, it's kind of a yin and yang, like how do you balance things? So I always look at things in that, from that perspective of yin, yang, feminine, masculine. So to me, wisdom is a feminine concept. So not female, but feminine. So yes, males, all of us have that feminine wisdom. And it's, it's that knowing that can't be learned through books. It will never be learned through books and book knowledge. It's your intuition. It's your instinct. It's, um, and the, and you know, it has feminine qualities, you know, it's mysterious, it's fluid. It, um, it's cyclical you know, so that, and, and it evolves and it grows. And it's, you know, if you look to nature, like nature is wisdom, it embodies wisdom. So there's this um, adage that is, you know, wisdom is doing what works until it doesn't. Mm. So it's knowing when, when things need to change and to shift. And you can only know that um, by intuition and instinct. And for me, wisdom is ruled by the heart, not by the mind. So if you like, to me, intellect is the mind. And when the intellect gets miswired, you know, that's when trauma happens. That's when anxiety, that's when depression happens. And to me, wisdom is always in the heart and wisdom will always remind us, you know, that, you know, for cases in trauma, like, when you finally realize that you're safe and you're not, you know, when you can get out of that loop that you get stuck in with trauma, when you finally realize that you're out of the trauma, that's heart wisdom. That's the knowing because your brain gets wired to think it gets stuck, right? There's a wire tripping and you still think you're in that um, danger. And that's the same with anxiety, you know, like you're making, it's all fictional. Um, and so that's, you know, that's where the intellect can go wrong when it gets miswired, right? And then we start trying to make decisions from this clouded space. But when wisdom is from the heart, wisdom is, you can't explain it. And that's what I love. And it changes, like my definition of wisdom changes all the time and it should, uh, depending on where I'm at, who I'm interacting with, what the, what the environment is. It's knowing what your environment is it's playing yeah. through the room and not in a way that's, you know, you're selling yourself, but it's, it's just knowing what your environment is and how to respond. I love that so much. I, I, so it, in this podcast, we've had, we had a podcast that was about values and we did a, like a little added, if you want to, some, some work that you could do to help yourself define 
your values and how you bring your values to your work or to your life and how you think about them. And it comes with like cards with value laden words written on them. And Mm so I have, and I've been doing that work like with students and in my mentoring program. And then on this podcast, I've done it so many times. And it's interesting because over time, not at the beginning, but over time, I've been drawn to the word wisdom more and more when I've had to like narrow down what are my true values to three words and then define them myself. Wisdom has become like central to that in ways that it wasn't at the beginning. At the beginning, it had more to do with intelligence or knowledge. And now it's much more about wisdom for me. And I think it's interesting. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's, there's this great book called The Master and His Emissary by Ian McGilchrist. And he's um, a psychologist and he's studied neuroscience a lot. And he was anyway, but he talks about, he has a new way of talking about right brain, left brain. I don't know if you're familiar with this book, but it's, um, you know, to distill it down basically, you know, and he he grows into great detail. So it's fascinating for anyone who's interested in the brain. Um, But this, the master and the emissary is this um, story about how, you know, the master um, who rules this um, country uh, gets, you know, his, his country is growing and growing and he, he needs help running the country. And so he gets his, you know, an emissary to help him just kind of, you know, oversee this region. And and so master goes off and he's doing his own thing. Anyway, the, the emissary gets to this place where he thinks he's the master and that he knows what's best for this region, you know, but the master comes back and is like, oh man, this guy, you know, the, the emissary, what he can't see is the big picture. And so for Ian McGilchrist, the brain, you have the left brain, which is really good at this hyper-focusing and getting into those details. And the right brain is this big picture. It's how we see the big picture. And his whole argument for writing this book is that we've become a society that is so left brain that we have forgotten the big picture. And to me, wisdom is that big picture of like, you know, and we talk so much about facts right now, right? Like facts are a thing and our facts, facts are truth. And I want to say, no, no, no. Truth is something else. Facts are so necessary and we need them. I'm not saying facts are you know, but they have their place, but it's like, we're making facts the master when they're just the emissary. And so another way I say this is, you know, the heart needs to be in charge and the mind is there to help. It can do all these cool little things. It can organize, it can, it can help us just survive, right? It can help us find food, but the heart needs to be in charge. And so yeah, this shift, I've done the same shift from being, you know, someone pursuing the intellect and intelligence through these, you know, our revered ways of academia and the ivory tower. And, and yet I was losing my soul, (laughs) you know, and like learning some really great things, but also just, you know, losing my rhythm, losing, Mm um, you know, and just becoming codependent with these institutions and, you know, the authorities, I think we're a society that loves to cling to authority and who's, you know, who know who's the expert. And when it comes to our day-to-day lives, like wisdom really, when you can make wisdom central, everything starts to flow and you're not fighting yourself anymore. You know, I think we spend so much time trying to align ourselves 
with the prescribed intelligence and what's the right way to do things. And that, oh, this is another metric I love to use with, with wisdom is wisdom, let's see. So the intellect is and intelligence is often concerned with how do things look, you know, does my life look right? And mm -hmm. wisdom is concerned with, does my life feel right? You know, and so that's where that music kind of comes in. And it's like, can I dance to my own life? Like, do I feel like dancing? Yeah. And if I can find, you know, you don't always feel like dancing, but I mean, if for the most part, you feel like you've entered a dance with life and I feel like, you know, you're probably a good chance you're leading with wisdom and not trying to like mechanically fit yourself into this, you know, intellectual, not even intellectual, but even just the societal pressures of what does a successful life look like? I love the idea of, and, and by the way, I'm smiling so much because this is exactly what I was hoping would happen in this. Like you, I, like there's so much, I know that I'm going to have to listen to this 400 times to just, because you say so much in this much time that I have to go back and go like, how do I sit with that and think about it for a little bit? Like I want to pause and go like, how's that affecting me? That's um, the curse of being a poet. I've learned to condense a lot into these. Well, I love it so much. Um, you do this all the time. Uh, I remember you telling me about how we need to be rooted like a two years ago, sitting on my back patio and I can't stop, stop thinking about it. It is in my head all the time. Um, yeah. But it's this Nate, like I'm really interested in two things. Like the fact that you said, and I, I'm going to live with this for a while. Like, can I dance to my life? Like, does, like, is there, that's really, that's really good. And it's something for me to sit with for a while to figure out, am I, like sometimes my dancing might need to be a little more still and sometimes it might need to be like super crazy, but am yeah. I dancing? <laughs> yeah. The dance can be whatever it needs to be, but is it a dance? And even that still place, you know, yeah. uh, musicians, there's a saying, you know, the music happens between the notes, you know, so what, what stretch or what, you know, sometimes between notes, it's a pause, it's a rest, it's a silence. So it's like that dance and that music you're making, it doesn't always have to be this like super upbeat rhythmic dance. It could be a lament, you yeah. know, I think of seeing dancers who do more of a lamenting. And it's you know? so beautiful still. Yeah, or it could be sleeping. My goodness, how I think most of us could use a lot of a lot more naps in our lives, <laughs> which I think we'd be dancing a little bit more. That's more. right. So uh, another thing that that's I just love that you are. So when you speak about wisdom, and then you speak about elder women, mm. um, and I love the the juxtaposition of that because often what we're talking about is either young or men. Right. And you're like interested in talking about yeah. older and women. And so yeah. what tell me what as that happens, like, first of all, what draws you to elder women? And second, like what have like what's an example of some of wisdom that you've learned through that work? Right. So, yeah, the, the elder women. So two things that we don't like to pay attention to. Right. <laughs> exactly. Um, and that was it. Exactly. You know, I felt like they're invisible. And they're a mystery. And I also feel like they have this, there's a generation right now that it's about to, it's about to be gone that I feel like has this last, any kind of 
sentiment towards a slower life. And I feel like their wisdom to me has a pace, it's slow. You know, like you don't get wisdom by rushing through life. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it's been a couple of generations since we've really, since we've known how to s- just sit with life and, and, um, and let it unfold rather than forcing it. And I feel like these women had at least a childhood that was slow and mimicked the seasons. And that's just so natural. That's so calming to me. It's so like, all I want to do is live with the seasons. Like, can I just live in harmony with the seasons? Like winter, can we all hibernate a little bit more, (laughs) you know? And, and, you know, spring is time for planting, fall is time for harvesting. We'll work really hard during those (laughs) two shoulder seasons and winter's for hibernating and summer is for siestas you know (laughs) and play (laughs) and play and just enjoying each other but yeah I feel like these women have still something that we are really you know and I back to this idea of being a friend like I feel like they know how to listen they when you talk with these elder women you really have to remember like they give themselves time to think and so I had to learn very quickly not to interrupt that silence with more questions like, okay, they're done. Now I'm going to ask my next question. It was like, oh, no, 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 honey, they're, they're thinking and you will wait for the next thing, you know? And so it's really taught me how to listen and to let those pauses and to let people process and, you know, and, and to exercise patience in ways that we've forgotten yeah. as yeah. well. Yeah. And the other thing about these elder women is, and I think is so fundamental to wisdom is they don't take themselves seriously. They are, they're so lighthearted and they have that perspective of just like, that is not worth your worry, my darling. You know, like, why is that the thing that's got you so upset? (laughs) And that's, you're not that big of a deal. And I'm not that big of a deal. Right. And and it's all going to be fine. And we're all going to end up in the grave anyway, you know? So, so what are you trying to prove? And I think wisdom really embodies this lightheartedness and this playfulness that I think we just, we do, we we're so busy trying to fill our resumes with these serious things, you know? And I'm just yes. like, I wish I could put more fun things on my resumes. <laughs> Let's do that. Shall we like, yeah. I would love if I got a resume that somebody talked about more about how actually I just have to tell you that one of the things I love that we are talking about, even in my work at WGU is learning happens everywhere Mm. and, and it shouldn't only be the realm of the educational institution that gets to, uh, that gets to, you know, like place that upon your head that I should get to own my own learning. Yep. And I should be able to talk about where, what I've learned and what that means. And I should get to own it, not a transcript from another place. Exactly. That's yes. Wisdom is, and that's it. It's personal. Yeah. And that's why it can't be, you know, that's why it can't be in a textbook or even in a self-help book, you know, like it, it has, you, you have to spend time with yourself and know yourself well enough. And to know that intuition, to know that voice of intuition and that instinct that is yours and to be curious. I think in some ways we're, 
I want to be genuinely curious about yourself and what do I want? What do, what is fun to me? What makes me want to dance? What makes me, you know, like, and, and rather than what, you know, we all get stuck in the shoulds and there's a big business out there, books that tell us what we should do. Um, but yeah, I think that learning for yourself starts with learning about yourself. Yeah. And that can be really healing and empowering. And then you get to show up to the table with exactly what only you can offer, you know, to a situation. And I think, I think good employers, the ones who I would call good employers will want that, will want what you have, what only you can offer. I'm sure. Yeah. They could replace, anyone can be replaced at any time, but for right now, you know, if you hold the position that you hold, there's something that you have that's very unique. And if you don't know what that is, your job's just gonna turn into, you know, misery. Like you might've even started out liking your job, but now you're doing what you think you should do to get the promotions, to get the whatever. And all of a sudden you're just dying inside because you don't know who you are and you've lost your curiosity about what would be a fun way to approach this problem? Or what would be a healing way to approach this problem? If this conversation has caught your attention and you want to join in on conversations like this, check out our website at connectioncollaborative.com. Welcome back. You're listening to 92,000 Hours, and today we are speaking with Anne-Marie Vivian. As you know, this whole podcast is a bit about finding purpose and meaning in our lives and acknowledging that we spend most of our lives at work. So how do we find purpose and meaning at work? Yeah. And so I've had these conversations with my colleagues who are working with me on this podcast who've expressed worry, like, well, what if... We're like, is this podcast privileged? Are we talking about purpose and meaning in work? How does that apply to the to the person who might be in what society has termed a menial role? How did how does someone who is a dishwasher or a janitor find purpose and meaning? And I, when I was reading your stuff about, you know, the the beauty in ritual and the beauty in simplicity and the beauty, I I was like. please let's talk about that. Yeah. No. Yeah. I mean, you're right. Like this, you know, the conversation of meaning and purpose can definitely become privileged, but I also think, you know, in general, yeah. So embracing the ordinary and that somehow, I think we've really um, dismissed the importance of what I call domestic jobs. And at home, that's the obvious, you know, keeping the house clean and, and whatever, but that is at our businesses, it's at our restaurants, it's the people who are doing the domestic kind of work. And I just think, you know, that's why we have this, you know, we've had this uh, decades long thing with like, you know, homemakers and are they valuable in our society? And are you really working if you're a homemaker? And that translates then into the workplace. Like, you know, do you have 
you know, can your job be meaningful if you are a janitor or if you are, you know, doing dishes and hell yes. Like I just, you know, to me, I just, it's, it's maddening that we have this hierarchy of, of work and what's, and what we value. And um, there, you know, it's just like, you could have this super high paying job and we all know this happens. You can have a high paying, important, quote unquote, important job and be miserable mm-hmm. and find no meaning, you know, like, and I've had jobs where I've, you know, that's, it's looked good and I've loved telling people my title. And yet I felt it was really hard to find meaning in like, why am I doing this? And I think, um, one, I'm such an advocate of like each of us in our personal lives, valuing our domestic I call them ordinary rituals. They like washing the ditch, dishes is a ritual for me. And I, and I, you know, I do, I put on certain music or, you know, like I, you know, and it's at a certain time of day, it's part of my winding down and it's, and it's, it's learning how to make your life holy and sacred. And that's, so that, that actually ties into this idea of wisdom being cyclical and what rituals do is they create the cyclical rhythm. You know, it's like you wake and I, you know, my mom taught me to make my bed in the morning, you know, and I've been doing it first thing since I was a kid. And we underestimate the value of these domestic ordinary rituals. But what they do is they, these are the things that give meaning to our lives. And even if you're going to a job where you question the meaning of, you know, like, why am I doing this? What is it really doing for society? You know, paying the bills, is a domestic duty and to, to give even, you know, I live alone, I'm single, like doing this for myself is, is nourishing to me. It's a sign that I love myself, that I will do a job that I'm not hundred percent passionate about because I care about me and I care about putting a roof over my head. And I live in this, in, you know, post-industrial society where, yes, do I wish I could be a farmer? Absolutely. <laughs> but I, you know, you know, this is my, and maybe one day I will be, Uh, but for now, this is where I'm at and I'm learning from it. And that's, I feel like these rituals, when you can really build them into your day, it becomes like that song because they don't become routine. If you allow them to have some variation, like I was talking about with songs, you know, it's like my, my rituals at home and at work change seasonally and according to my intuition and what do I need and but having them there allows me to have a sense of purpose my life is sacred these things are holy even these tiny little tasks and so I can apply that at work too like these tasks that we all hate to do everyone has them it's just like okay this is I care about me. I care about my community. I care about the people I work with, even if I don't care about our ultimate goal. Like, let's say you're in a job where you're like, I don't even care about the ultimate goal. If you can get to a place to where you care about the people you work with and they're trying to put a roof over their head for their families and their kids. And so your success is their success, you know, and if you can have that team mentality, then you can start to have the meaning and purpose. Because if it's always all about you, it's so hard to find <laughs> the meaning and the purpose. And uh, I'll just end with this last little thought. I'm rambling. Um, 
I think, I don't know how you say it out loud. I've only ever read it, but the Japanese term, ikigai, have you heard this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's just that, you know, what do you get up in the morning for? And I think if you limit yourself to, I'm getting up in the morning to go to my job, <laughs> it's like, yeah, then, <laughs> you know, it's, it is, it's a perspective thing. And wisdom is all about getting that bigger picture perspective. We don't honor these mundane things enough because they lay, they are the roots. They do lay the groundwork for these peak experiences and you can't have the peak experiences without them. And so these, you know, we're, we're a culture, you know, I've decided, you know, and it gets really, I get sucked into this where you get sucked into the culture of buying a life versus building a life. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I have to constantly pull myself and just say, I want to build a life. And in a lot of ways, I feel like I'm quote unquote behind, you know, we all play that game of like, I'm this age, all my friends who are this I age, should be. I should be at this place. I should have this kind of money. I should have this kind of house, blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, I'm building a life. <laughs> so it's going slow. <laughs> And it's, and my days are very mundane, you know, when people want to catch up with me, I'm just like, well, I'm doing the same things, reading and going to work and writing. (laughs) Peak experiences are very rare, you know. You know what? I remember I talk about this with a a friend of mine all the time when we call them our Cheerios moments. Mm. And And it comes from, I read an article once about um, about a mom who had cancer and she was super worried that she was going to pass away without having like what you're calling the peak experiences with her kids. And she was so sick that the big trip to Disneyland wasn't going to be able to happen. And she was talking to her kid about it. And her kid was like, I could care less about Disneyland. Yeah. The thing that matters the very most to me is when we have Cheerios together every morning. Uh, kids, I'm telling you. Right? And so I'm always like, it's those Cheerios moments. It's those little things that, that make the meaning. It's not the giant experience, which is fun and has something, but, but you're going to, but your kids are going to appreciate your everyday ritual of having Cheerios with them. Yeah. And that's the same with any relationship. Right. And I think that's so hard for people when they get into a romantic relationship is they find out it's, (laughs) <laughs> mostly for mundane and ordinary and not that exciting um yeah we're just we're so addicted to that excitement and it's in a lot of ways I'm just always like I need to detach from dopamine like it like my <laughs> you know like we all want those dopamine hits you know and you get them and you just want more and you want more and you want those highs and I'm just like I just would love some space from dopamine could we just like it yeah, just turn it down, worlds. Um, but yeah, no, I the Cheerios moments. Well, and that, and it also with wisdom. I did want to mention, you know, that I do realize that wisdom is not, you know, owned by the elders. That anyone at any age, and we all have these moments of wisdom. And um, I think for you know, I love that story of the child just reminding the mother of just like. The things that matter are the things that most people overlook and rush through. I remember hearing a, um, an interview with a rabbi. This is 
a few years back, I was going through a divorce and um, they were talking about, you know, our culture's obsession with happiness and this phrase that people often use, you know, pursuit of happiness. And this rabbi was saying, you know, I think we've been running so fast trying to pursue happiness that we don't realize that it's behind us. <laughs> you know, like, we're so, we're going so fast that we don't realize it's just right here. And, you know, you, like, this is it. And um, I have one of my rituals. I'm, you know, at any time, if anyone wants to like hear the rundown of Anne's daily rituals, <laughs> but one of them is at nighttime. And these only, you know, my rituals really take a couple minutes, but it's, it's a way that kind of orients me in my day, but I have one at night and I just call it a death meditation. I'm just, you know, this day is over, it's gone. Mm -hmm. And it's a way for me to practice just, and to remember that at, in the end, I end up in the grave. And what were the things that really mattered today? And a lot of the times they're really mundane. And, but yet they're the sweetest things. And I know, you know, if, if I have any kind of consciousness, you know, after death, I know if, if I could look back, I will look at those are the things that I will miss the most. The making my bed, the doing my dishes, the sitting down in my reading chair, pouring a cup of tea. You know, I'm not going to think about, you know, living abroad in China and that adventure. I mean, sure, maybe a little bit, but I'm going to miss most the things I did day to day that you know, where I took care of myself, where I took care of my people. Where That's you made a life. That's what it looks like. Yeah. There was something I wanted to make sure I talk about, which is, I don't even know where it would lead, but um, I loved you. You brought this up at the beginning uh, and I had read about it on your, in some of your work about that. It's that it can be difficult to actually interview the elder women because, because they like the struggle to, highlight them. And, and I think like, I've experienced that too, like this whole part of our society that the older we get as women, the more likely we are to disappear. And, and like I, in my career, I haven't disappeared, but in social situations, I am far more invisible than I was when I was young and pretty, right? Like it's a whole different thing for me now. And, um, and I'm seeing it. I'm like, wow, as I begin to age, I get more and more invisible. Um, it's infuriating too, I have to say, because I have more things to say now. I'm much more interesting than I was back then. Yeah. Now I would like some attention, please. Yeah, it's like I have some. I there, yeah. guys, I have some stories. Um, but I I read this book called Disappearing Acts, and it was about it's a leadership book. Mm. Um, but it was about how we as a society have literally disappeared all of those things that we call soft skills. But they were the things that were like creating the connections, the nurturing, the supporting, the encouraging, the meaning making, even the preparing for something and cleaning it up that happens in, in the business world yep. that was often done. It wasn't even called leadership. We didn't even think of them as skills because they were done by the secretaries, the assistants, and the wives. Yep. <laughs> And yeah. so they were like, they're literally disappeared out of the lit literature until like the 1990s when people were like, oh, soft skills or something. Yeah. Okay. This thing with soft skills, 
months. Yes. Oh my God. So this goes back to this idea of feminine. Yeah. And I think we severely misunderstand what feminine is and the power that it has, you know, that it is this, you know, this idea of soft, you know, it doesn't quite get at it. What it is, is it's fluid. It's adaptable. It, it does what needs to be done. And I think that is badass, you know, like, does the trash need to be taken out? So this looks right. I will take the trash out. Right. You know, like, (laughs) I'm not going to look around and wonder who's going to do it for me. Yeah. And it has to do with like, it's, it's, it's concerned with ecology and what is the environment like and making an environment friendly and, 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 and so that it evokes innovation, right? Like the feminine gets that the environment matters. People need to be fed so they can think bodies need to be taken care of. So we are at our best. And so the feminine, like if you lead with that feminine and it's not about being just soft, you know, it's like, it's a, you know, like when you think of like women who, and not just women, like, you know, I have a list of men I want to interview for wisdom anthologies. That's like phase three or four, you know, we'll get Mm -hmm. there, but it's just like, you know, who are, you know, these things that, and these skills and these characteristics that we need, you know, and you're right with like the connection and those relationships, you know, and like taking time to have a conversation with people and knowing that this is building a relationship often takes time. And it's not just this wheel and deal, one conversation, handshake, done, boom. (laughs) It's like, right. It's work and it's a valid and really important part of getting something accomplished. Yeah. It's not just useless chit chat, you know, and it's like these skills that have been labeled soft. And that's, you know, I have a project where I've been keeping a list, like asking people like list for me, some feminine qualities and people maybe get three or four and they're interesting. And then I'm like, let me, let me share with you some like mysterious, receptive, open awakeners, like the feminine qualities are the awakeners you know, and this like life givers and they're cyclical and not linear, you know, and it's just expansive and not focused. And so, you know, these soft skills that people talk about, they severely and grossly underestimate the power that they have. And I think the more we begin to invest in them individually, because I think as individuals we're really bad at embracing those sides of ourselves. You know, like, well, I shouldn't stop and have this conversation, like, you know, or does it matter if we have good food at this thing? Or does it matter if the space we meet in is beautiful? <laughs> you know, and I'm like, yes, it does, actually. And I, you know, I, where I did my graduate work, um, was at a um, school in England, and it was so different from my undergraduate. You can say it. Your school was a pretty big deal. (laughs) I went to Oxford. And so, you know, I'm doing my undergraduate here in in Utah, which I love my school, but it was like, I went to Oxford and it was beautiful. And, And the things I could think, and I wanted to be in the library. I wanted to 24 seven be learning and talking and discussing and creating ideas and I wanted to be there and you know and there's been different office places I've worked at and yes the more beautiful and thoughtful the spaces the better I think the more I want to be there and contribute so you know the people who are making these spaces you know at least 
tolerable. I think most of us, if we're lucky, we have a tolerable space we're working in. Right. <laughs> but hopefully we have natural light. Right. You know? um, then we're lucky if we even just have natural light. And to, you know, to underestimate the value of how that affects our productivity and our passion. You know, I actually want people to stop talking about productivity at work and start talking about passion. Because if you just like nail passion, if you help build passion, people will go beyond productive. Yeah. You know, like we'll kill it. So if you, if you make our working conditions beautiful, which is through these quote unquote soft skills, if you make it a place I want to come and talk to people and have the water cooler conversations, <laughs> I mean, yeah, like I will give you my all, like no doubt. <laughs> you also, you pro you talked about this, this importance of beauty. And I know you've done a lot of thinking and writing and listening about what beauty is and means to us. And, and I love when, like I read something that you had written about beauty being located also in the dark spaces too like, or in the overlooked spaces. And I'm like, I would just love to hear you talk a little bit about what, mm -hmm. what does, how does beauty play a role in terms of either our wisdom or our connection? Like, talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah. So for me, beauty is rooted in darkness. It has to be. And, and, um, and, and most of, you know, I'm, I'm a poet by training um, and that's where, you know, I studied that in school and, and still consider myself first and foremost a poet. But, and I think that's why I love poets so much is because, you know, they're not just talking about pretty flowers and, and all this stuff. They always weave into it the sorrow and the grief mm. of life. And that's just beauty, real beauty is honest and the honest truth about our human existence is that we are imperfect and we will die you know like we're gonna and and not in, you know we're just we're we're not going to always do what is expected of us you know so i don't want to say like we don't do good things all the time i think all of us are most of us are well-intentioned <laughs> and just kind of haphazardly trying to get through life but and we end up hurting people and being hurt along the way and without the sorrow, without the grief, without the darkness, there is no beauty. And that's just, yeah, if, if, you, if you don't acknowledge the darkness and if you're always this person who's like, it's sunshine all the time in my life and I always take the positive view and I never get mad. And, and I'm like, then the beauty in your life is not, it has no substance. It has no depth. No depth. <laughs> yeah, no depth. And it's, it's manufactured. And that's, it, you know, it's coming from the mind, you know, and that's, it's a, the mind can be a wonderful place of the imagination. It can also be quite fictitious in a very damaging way. And mm -hmm. I feel like, again, back to that heart, you know, like if your heart does not break from time to time, like, and that's where wisdom is, is in the heart. And to receive wisdom, the heart has to break. And so if you go through life trying not to get your heart broken in this way or that way, then you're just, you're also blocking out that beauty and that joy that will come from that. And so, yeah, for me, you know, I get a lot of people who will sometimes be like, you're so sad. You're so melancholy. Sometimes I'm like, I have to have seasons of that. 
and it's real and it's honest. And yeah, sometimes I'm not super happy with my life. And it's when I allow myself to not be happy with it, I go into the depths and then I can find what is at the roots so that I can change it. And so it's like, you have to be willing to hurt and you can't avoid it. And I'm learning more and more to embrace it. And so, you know, and, and I actually see beauty in your own yeah. hurt. Like there's. Yes. Yes. In the wounds, you know, there's this phrase, you know, there's wisdom in the wounds. Wisdom is the wounds. And you, when you're willing to learn from the wounds rather than run from them or try to cover them up or give them a bandaid, which we all do. And I get, I find my, you know, it's so sneaky. We're so sneaky. We think we're working on it. And then you're like, oh no, I'm not. I haven't gone deep enough. <laughs> still not. I'm still, still not there. Oh, I have to go deeper. Oh, this has to hurt more. Oh, okay. <laughs> like, okay. I'm still trying to pretend everything's okay and I'm fine and I'm not. Um, but that's too where wisdom becomes really personal because only you will know how deep you need to go and how long you need to go there and not worry about everyone else around you who's worried about you you know like are you okay and it's like yes i'm sad and depressed but i am okay this is part of my process and you know i get a lot of people who will you know they'll see the one side of me where i'm all about beauty and then they want to ignore when i write about the sadness or the sorrow and i just think you can't you can't just have the one side they go together and um, yeah, and I think that ties into just those peak experiences in the ordinary, you know, just like yeah. all of it creates the beauty. If you want the peak experiences, it's got to go dark sometimes. And that's what nature shows us. It goes dark every night. And actually, I prefer to wake up. I wake up very early. I wake up at 4 a.m. because I don't have kids and waking up early sounds awesome. <laughs> Um, I wake up because it's still dark and I want to remind myself that I'm rooted. That's where my roots are. And that's the, the subconscious. And I want to, I, I want to face it. I want to get in there because it's, it's crazy, but it's beautiful. And when you can accept it and face it, it doesn't turn into that shadow toxic thing that can happen. I love it. I love it so much. This is so great. I want to ask you, uh, my question that I always ask about, which is mentors show up in lots of different ways. Mm -hmm. And so I'm interested in you talking to me about a mentor that you've had. It really is my friends. Um, and I think because they see all sides of me, they see, you know, I do have this, uh, want to do well at my job and a little bit of ambition there, but I also have this very spiritual, mystical side that you know I don't get to show at work so much and so I think you know they're they're my people that I go to and especially these two girlfriends I have um, because they they allow me to be the complex person that I am and I think we're all complex people with many layers and um, they know you know that I I always have a struggle inside of you know, I'd love to live the creative life, but that's also not sustainable. So it's like how finding the balance of being a creative while also having a day job. Um, and so they're able to really, at least if they don't, you know, they, they rarely have a, you know, this is what you should do. 
but they're the good listeners that goes back to this listening. So I guess I would say good mentors are the good listeners who, um, you know, just allow you to hear yourself out loud. Um, and, and they listen and they can just say, yeah, this is the struggle we all face, you know, and we're with you. So for me, mentors are people who just say, yeah, you're human. Can I just tell you, however, like it makes me almost feel a little bit weepy because mm-hmm. the most pr- the your biggest accomplishment is you're being a good listener. Oh, yeah, I guess I've and your mentors <laughs> are your friends who listen, like who true, like full yeah. on listen. And I and it so this really resonates with me about it's so funny because sometimes it chokes me up. So I'll try not. And I don't even know why it chokes me up because I do actually think it's super profound if you think about it. Mm-hmm. And it was probably five or six years ago. Um, it was sister Helen Prejean came to Utah and spoke mm-hmm. and, you know, she's just amazing. And, and she, I just remember I wrote it down and I wish I had it, but she, as she was speaking, she was said something, you know, she goes and visits um, death row inmates and is with them mm-hmm. and, and, and just is with them. And she said, the most, what she's learned in her work with people who are facing death is that the most important thing, the biggest, most giant gift you can give someone is to listen to them. Oh God. Well, that's the, the truth of it is. And I've said this a couple of times. I love that is that we're all facing death. Yeah. You know, like none of us knows when that moment is coming. And I think that's why we can get so anxious and but we're also just not facing that. We're trying to avoid that fact. And so I do this exercise a lot and it's, it's a lot of like different coaches use this, I think, but it's the inner mentor, you know, imagining yourself 20 years from now, because only you know what you can contribute in the best way. Only you will know, you know, like what you are going to do in this situation to get over this hurdle. And so it's like the, this meditation practice that you can do going to visit yourself you know and how did you get there how did you get to where you are how did you get to this place what did you do in this situation to get there what did you say to that person or what you know (laughs) how did you handle this and I think to me like a lot of people ask with the wisdom anthologies you know who do these women go to for their wisdom it's themselves absolutely themselves to express my gratitude to Anne Marie for sharing her own wisdom with us. You can read more of her approach to living a life of ritual and meaning at annemarievivienne.com. Next week, I'll be joined by Liz Tinkham. Liz is a retired executive, an adjunct professor, a board member, and a podcaster. Her podcast is called Third Act, and we will be talking about transitions. I hope you'll join us. As always, thank you for listening to 92,000 Hours. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. We really appreciate your support. If you're interested in integrating the personal and professional through authentic conversation, just like you heard on our episode today, please check out our work at Connection Collaborative. You can find us at connectioncollaborative.com or send me an email at annalisa at connectioncollaborative.com. Thank you and see you next week on 92,000 Hours. Ninety Two Thousand Hours is made possible by Connection Collaborative. This episode was produced and edited by Brianna Stegel. Lexi Banks is our marketing director, and I'm your host, Annalisa Holcomb.